Audio Cam with Cam Scotland. Bridge differences with mediation. Hello and welcome to uh, Audio Cam for Cam Scotland. My name is Scott Doherty uh, and I'm here today with Charlie Irvin, uh, an experienced and innovative mediator and former chair of the Scottish Mediation Network. Uh, Charlie's also a senior teaching fellow at the University of Strathclyde Law School, Glasgow, where we are just now. Uh, where he developed Scotland's first master's programme in mediation and conflict resolution. His academic work's concerned with integrating the physical and emotional domain into mediation practice and the contribution of uh, alternative dispute resolution to the justice system. Welcome, Charlie. Hi. Nice to meet you. So, we're talking today about conflict. Uh, and You talked a, a little about this recently at the conference of the Scottish Centre for Conflict Resolution. Mm. Uh, in, a, in a fascinating article in 2012, you suggested that conflict is one of the three pillars of mediation. Can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, so it seems to me that uh, if you're going to mediate, you're essentially daring to enter other people's conflicts, or other people's lives. Therefore, you, you owe it to them as well as to yourself to have a good understanding of the nature of conflict. That's where the idea came. I did a master's course once upon a time in mediation, and at the end of it, it seemed to me that those three pillars, conflict, communication, and resolution, pretty much were what you could boil it all down to. But I think the conflict one is the absolute starting point. Okay. Uh, and in your, your recent talk um, with the, the SCCR, you, you mentioned something called attribution theory, mm. uh, and also fundamental attribution error. Um, so, f- for the benefit of someone going through a separation at the moment, uh, I wonder if you could break that down and talk about what might be fueling their conflict. Yes, I, I mean, these are intimidatingly long words for uh, actually delightfully simple ideas. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's my pleasure to try and turn that into much more straightforward language. So, I mean, first of all, attributions, uh, all that means is guesses. We, we spend quite a lot of our time probably guessing what's inside other people's heads. It's a very natural thing to do when you're growing up. It's a skill we acquire. It tells us, first of all, if our parents are well-intentioned towards us. Are they happy? Are they sad? Am I going to get fed a cuddle or am I going to get a smack, etc.? Back in the day. don't <laughs> do that anymore, I believe. Um, and as we get older, it also might tell us if, if another adult is well-intentioned towards us. Does this person mean us harm or not? So these are guesses, and they're called attributions by psychologists. Um, and, and it's a whole way of understanding, I think, a very natural human tendency to, to want to know how other people are going to behave towards us. So is that a kind of fight-or-flight type? Uh, it, it may be related. I think it, it's more a source of fight-or-flight. Mm-hmm. So if I think that you are well-intentioned towards me, maybe you smile as I walk into the room, I can relax. I can then attend to whatever else the conversation's about. But if I think that you're a threat of some sort, you're, maybe you're my adversary, you're going to harm me in some way, I am immediately aroused, emo- they call it emotionally aroused, mm-hmm. and that, that means that I'm triggered to feel possibly fear, possibly anger, a whole range of, of emotions, and those emotions have uh, visceral effects. Fight and flight are probably the most famous. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There are actually quite a range of others um, that, that might happen to us, but we know that you know, it's a very obvious thing. If you're very threatening, I want to run away. Sure. Um, or if you 
annoy me and rile me, I might want to do you down in some way. Uh-huh. And you mentioned in your talk something about biases, is that...? So, yes, this is, you already raised the term, the fundamental attribution error, so I'm just trying to explain that in a wee bit of uh, more detail. So the idea is we make guesses about other people's intentions. Most of the time we do that very well. I see someone in the street and I think, is that someone that I need to avoid or not? We're, we're quite good at it. However, there seems to be a predictable... Bias is the word that psychologists use. In other words, that sometimes we maybe overlook certain things or underestimate certain things. And, and a very profound one, why, why it's called fundamental, is we seem to overestimate um, when, when we're looking at someone else's actions, particularly if their actions harm us in some way. Supposing somebody you know, bumps into us in the street and knocks us over we're much more likely to attribute their actions, in other words, our guess about why they did what they did, um, to the way they are. Sure. It's their nature. That's just the kind of guy I'm dealing with here. When, in fact, there may often be other explanations. Um, It may be that a person bumped into me because they're, they're actually visually impaired. Now, that would be a circumstance, that would be a situation intervening. It's not that that person necessarily has bad intentions towards me. There's a factor. Or it may be that they uh, bumped into me because something distracted them. They were looking the other side of the road at that time. Well, the same happens in the social world. The same happens in... I've worked as a a family mediator for over 20 years, so I, I would maybe be quite familiar with my clients scratching their heads about... Why? They would sometimes say to me, why would he do this? Why would she do that? Why would she behave? And usually that's a rhetorical question. Before I have the chance to say, (laughs) there might be a range of possibilities, clients will often say, it's because um, she is either ill-intentioned, trying to harm me, doesn't care about her children, uh, puts herself before other people. Stroke, he, let's not get gender about this. He is, you know, all the same things, Uh puts himself before other people. And tend to underestimate uh, the possibility that there may be a whole range of situational explanations, uh, circumstances that have caused people to do the things they do. So that that's that's a simple explanation. It gets better. It gets more interesting though because I think the circumstance that we underestimate the most is ourselves. Yeah. So when my ex-partner doesn't pick up the phone, um, I might make the guess that that's because they are uncommunicative and they're trying to brush me off uh, because they're a sour natured person, when it may turn out that they're not picking up the phone because the last time they picked up the phone I shouted at them I'm fairly likely to airbrush out my shouting Why do you think we do that? (laughs) (laughs) Actually there's lots of good reasons for that, so people are not stupid and and, and we, we have good reasons for most of what we do, the psychologists seem to think that it's attractive to us to um, make long term predictions about other people because that makes the world manageable so if I, I, supposing I just met you and I conclude that Scott is an um, amiable and trustworthy person, then you'll be amiable and trustworthy tomorrow. Sure, and you'd be wrong, after. of course. but <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, or, or if you're a difficult person, I've got to be wary of you. That's, that's helpful. Whereas circumstances, uh, you know, as I say, it might be that you um, didn't smile back because you had just bumped your toe and you were 
more concerned mm. with that. That's a very temporary thing, and it doesn't give me much information about the future. Yeah. So that might be a reason why we tend to resist situational explanations. I, I think it's important for me to say I'm not saying that everything is motivated by some fleeting circumstance or that, that people... I'm not certainly not saying people are never ill-intentioned, but what the fundamental attribution error teaches us is that we have a tendency to underestimate the possibility of intervening circumstances, an explanation, and we tend to overestimate that the person's doing it because they are a bad person. Yeah. Is it fair to say in, in mediations uh, you've been involved in that error is made based on, uh, for example, the, the the former spouse or partner, how they've behaved in the past, uh, and therefore that justifies their assessment of how they're behaving at the moment? Of course, yes. I, I, and of, of course, um, it goes without saying that in family uh, dis- disputes, I suppose is what we would call them, they come our way, family breakups, um, both people have vast amounts of uh, data about the other person which they bring to the table. So there's quite a strong chance that even before the other person's done anything, I already anticipate maybe that they are doing it for bad motives. Uh, so if I bring that that lens to bear, it's quite likely that if they do something that's perhaps neutral... Yep. I mean, I think maybe one of the classic examples is arriving late. Now, arriving late may indeed be extremely irritating, <laughs> uh, and it may be very upsetting to children who are waiting to be picked up, etc. However, we can all imagine there could be a range of situations that, that cause lateness, depending whether it's habitual or not. Um, some of them may be willful, but I think we could all imagine there might be circumstances that are more neutral. If we've got a history with someone, we're more likely to overlook the neutral explanation. Yeah, yeah. So the, the information that we bring to the, the the parties bring to the table then, I was going to ask how mediation can help uh, with all of this. Mm. Uh, before I get on to that then, how do you think that plays itself out when parties are across the table uh, in a courtroom? It, well, it's very interesting. I, I think um, the, there is a possibility of a kind of vicious circle and I've certainly I've worked with people who find themselves locked into that, that um, again, let me use myself as an example. If, if I were to meet you today um, and I already thought <clears throat> I've got to watch out for that Scott Johnson, um, I there's a strong chance that I might not be my usual friendly self. You, you would then see that and you'd behave in a more weary uh, fashion, maybe actually in an openly hostile fashion because of my behaviour. But as I said earlier, I tend to airbrush out my own behaviour. All I see is your negative response to me. So I think to myself, this proves it. You see what I'm dealing with here? This is the kind of person you've got to watch out for. Sure. So my sense is you go into court, everybody's nervous. People are not probably on the most smiley of terms anyway. And you see your ex across the courtroom. The slightest... um, look, glance, even if it was a glance of nerves, is more likely to be interpreted as a a glance of hostility. So I think uh, in mediation or in the courtroom there is a strong possibility of us interpreting things in a a light that fuels a a kind of vicious circle because of course then we react back and if you grimace at me and then I grimace back at you, 
You're quite justified in feeling that I have taken a hostile act. Uh, and you feel, uh, I think, again, something you mentioned in your talk recently is, uh, you know, you're, you're observing that um, from your own point of view, um, and when you're distracted with the conflict, it's very difficult to, to tear yourself away from that viewpoint. Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's another little bit of the science. That we, the, the, the busier our brains are, the harder it is to maybe um, overturn our first reaction. Uh, if we've got time, we, we're quite good at that, and, and we can revise our opinion and think, actually, there might be other explanations. But when we're really stressed, that's when we're least likely to do it. Okay. So how can mediation help then? So I, I've thought long and hard about this. Um, I think one of the simplest things mediation brings to the table is more information or more data that... Uh, mediators will often be quite patient and sometimes can appear to be meandering (laughs) through the situation rather than cutting to the chase and I think there's a lot of um, skill behind that and and partly it's because we want to fill in the blanks in the other person's intentions I can't see inside someone else's head and the other person in mediation of course is there so I can start to flesh out some of the details of why someone did such and such a thing or what they were thinking or what they were thinking about me when they did such and such a thing. So I think that's the first contribution of mediation is just information, more data. To find out how mediation can help you, follow us at CAM Scotland on Twitter, Facebook and Google Plus or visit camscotland.co.uk. Can I go on? I think I think there's a second contribution. Yeah, well, before we go into yeah. that, then, some would argue, um, uh, not me, <laughs> but some would argue that um, if you were to get into a courtroom, it's all about information uh, and the uh, ability uh, of the, the judge to look at both parties' points of view and filling in those gaps. So what's different, do you think? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not here to um, <clears throat> be a critic of the court process. I think it, it does a job, but its job is to establish facts uh, and it's also to establish facts retrospectively where I think what mediation is attempting to do is to look at um, I I suppose a much broader range of perspectives on a situation prospectively. We're looking forward. We're looking at what might be done. How might we do this differently in future and therefore I I think just by the nature of mediation there's a much broader range of um, information that's necessary. Uh, the, the court, there's something else going on in court. It, it's almost inevitable that when I speak in court, I can only speak of things that support my case, and I can't acknowledge anything that might undermine it. Mm. Whereas in a in a real world conversation between real life people, we all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have good days, bad days, off days, etc. I think mediation allows people to acknowledge maybe a more three-dimensional um, perspective on their own behaviour yeah, um, yeah. as well as the behaviour of the other person. So you think uh, from the psychological point of view then it's um, perhaps uh, about the right information coming to the fore rather than, uh, as you say, the, the kind of past stuff that justifies what should happen? I, I, think media- I mean, mediation probably does all of these things. I think the, the phrase that some people use is neglected Neglected data, you know, in my story of the person I'm in conflict with, there may well be quite a lot of bits of the story that I'm missing out. 
Um, there might be bits of the story I'm missing out that I actually know if I just took the time to think about it. There'll be other bits that I don't know at all because I don't know what the other person's been thinking. In mediation, I can, I can flesh that out. But I think the purpose, we, we have to come on to the purpose here. Sure. In the end of the day in mediation, the purpose is not to establish who's to blame for what in the past. That's simply, it's just not our mandate. Um, and, and we're very clear about that. The purpose is at some point to start saying, okay then, in the light of this, what, what can that be? What can that look like tomorrow, next week? And, and of course, uh, when your children are walking down the aisle. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I'm wondering how easy that is for parties that are locked in conflict. The, 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 it's been expressed before that mediation can only go so far in resolving what's going on internally with separating couples. And I've experienced a number of mediations myself where the parties seem to be struggling to uh, reach the mindset necessary to, to move forward. Um, and I'm wondering how much of an impact there might be for parties where... Um, perhaps before or alongside uh, mediation sessions, they're given an opportunity to take part in something like counselling or um, cognitive behavioural therapy or something like that? I mean, I'm, I'm very wary, I suppose, of diagnosing anyone else's life. I've got a huge amount of respect for the, well, parents that I have worked with for the last uh, nearly 25 years. I think people are wrestling with all sorts of things. One frame I've found quite helpful, actually, is to just share with people some of my reading around uh, the grieving process. I, I think I think it's important to recognise that people can sometimes be in a very dark place uh, when they've lost something as profound as a as an intimate relationship. We grieve for many things in life. Death is one of them, but the loss of a partner is, is another, and not to mention the loss of all the time we thought we were going to have with our children. So I would often think of myself more as walking alongside people through that grieving process, and that sometimes what they need is time. Uh, sometimes what they need actually is a little bit of information that the way you feel today is normal and natural, but it may not be the way you always feel. Yeah. And in fact, with people who've very recently separated, sometimes my advice would be, whatever you do, don't make any decisions now. Um, and, and give yourself time to, to grieve. Uh, that may take a long time for some people. So alongside that, to answer your question, yes, I think there are sometimes moments when people are not ready to do what mediation offers, which is to negotiate, uh, to problem-solve, and... Sometimes mediation is quite pragmatic, and so they could benefit from conversation that's more about their their kind of internal world. But having said that, you know, I, I'm I'm probably fairly um, pragmatic about this. If if somebody says to me, "I'll give it a go," <laughs> then you know, I'll, I'll respect that and I'll work with them. It may work and it may not work, but people know their own emotional capabilities. Mm. Uh, what about, do you, have you found that um, parties who have already been locked in some degree of a court battle, um, do you find that they come to mediation with less of a, an open mind about things like that? Again, I'm very hesitant to, to make sweeping generalisations. Court can be unhelpful. On the other hand, if you look at the literature on international conflict, some people may be aware that there's lots of international mediators. There's a, a phrase that's sometimes used about conflicts between countries, and it's the phrase um, mediation ripeness. 
uh, or, or sometimes called the hurting stalemate. And the idea is that uh, people aren't motivated enough to do the hard work of mediation until things reach a kind of stalemate. So sometimes there are clients who've been in, they've seen enough of the court process to think this is not working very well for me and it's maybe expensive and it's time consuming. So, so sometimes actually it provides a, a motivation to um, let's try an alternative. And I've, I've used the word work. Let me just hammer that one home. Mediation is not an easy option. Yeah. I think there's a myth around that it's somehow softer and easier than the court. I think it's a very, very tough day out. Mm-hmm. It's certainly something we're, we're keen to hammer home at, at CAM Scotland that the perhaps the easier thing to do is to take all this conflict and just hand it over to someone else to sort out yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I, I think I once did a mediation demo in front of some uh, councillors and they, they said to me at the end, oh, this is very grown up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 it was quite helpful for me to realise that. I think that's fair. You know, I think, I think we are assuming uh, a, quite a, an adult way of thinking from our clients. And, and I think that's, that's not a bad thing. We shouldn't apologise for it, but it's quite challenging. Sure. So coming back then to what you were talking about earlier about the, the, the attribution error and um, mm. the, the science behind it, for parties um, thinking about mediation or going into mediation, do you have any tips uh, as to how they might consider uh, approaching the, the mediation mm. and thinking about the conflict that they're under at the moment? It's a really good question. There's been some literature, and I'm not familiar with it all, on the idea of debiasing. Can we can we debias? Yep. Um, there's there's some evidence that we can. I mean, one simple form of debiasing, is, I hope it's not patronising to anyone, might be just to take a piece of paper and write the, you know, divide it down the middle, draw a line, and then write down on one side all the um, things that support your perspective, and then maybe maybe even stand up sit on the other side of the table and write down on the other side all the things that might support your ex-partner's perspective. That's quite a challenging exercise, but actually I think people would be surprised at how much they already know. Uh, You could take that slightly further if you're prepared to take the risk and say to your solicitor, um, be honest with me, Uh, because I think solicitors won't do that unless they're given permission to what do you think my ex might be saying at the moment or how do you think they might see things because I think I think repeat players like lawyers will often have insight into how the, the other side might see things you could ask other family members but the problem with that is they often will actually take our biases and exacerbate them because of course they know you yeah, and you're their brother, sister, friend whatever so it's not really the, f- the friend's job to challenge. Sure, sure. Um, so that's why I would, I'd be inclined to, to think maybe a, a well-intentioned professional or, or somebody who's kind of outside the situation. But those are, those are simple debiasing techniques. It, it gets harder. Phoning up your ex and saying, tell me why you did this, that's quite high risk um, because the, the why question can sometimes be used as a rhetorical opening to mean not tell me the answer but why are you so stupid <laughs> why are you so bad why, why, didn't, why didn't you do this and <laughs> exactly yeah. it's a very accusatory question mm-hmm. so it's harder um, that's probably why, why mediators might help but I think you can certainly try and debias your own perspective even if it's a case of saying 
I, I, I'm not necessarily going to be charitable towards my ex. I'm just trying to be for, forewarned as forearmed. Mm. And is it easier to do that, do you think, privately rather than during a mediation session? I've, I've certainly experienced mm-hmm. situations where um, sometimes the, the mediator will say, you know, put yourself in your ex's shoes. Uh, uh, but yeah. when your ex is sitting in that room staring at you, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. nine times out of ten you'll get the answer, well, I, I would still take the position I'm yes, taking. Absolutely. That kind of idea. We, I think we, under, we underplay in this country the importance of face-saving. You know, other countries mm-hmm. have a, a whole idea of face work, but I think people don't like to lose face. Mm-hmm. So being put on the spot like that in front of your ex can be quite high risk for people. There might be a moment when that's a good idea. So I, I'm all for private uh, doing, doing things. I think it's both and. The more you can do in your own time, that's why I like the internet in the sense that it allows people... Uh, you can go online in your jammies in the middle of the night and have a think about things. And some, for some people, that gives them an extra perspective. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about parents in particular who have separated, yeah. um, where they, they, they're finding it difficult, um, the, the conflict is getting in the way of parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel there's, there's um, a, a, an opportunity uh, available for... Those, those parents to be coached at all or um, to, to look into alternative ways of yes, handling it? Yes, absolutely. And there, again, there's quite good evidence for this and um, particularly the USA has been doing a lot of this and, and there's more and more of it in Scotland that some people find a, a short um, parent parenting apart type programme, parent information programme, maybe over four or five sessions. It just gives them enough perspective mm. to then move on. Sure. You know, without necessarily having to go to mediation or to court. So I'm all for that. You know, you you probably pick up from me. I think uh, there's the old joke about I always find my key in the last place I looked. (laughs) You know, I I think the thing that works is is the right thing. Sure. And and that could be a whole combination of things. Um, I think one of the messages you might get from a mediator is don't give up. Yeah. I think you'll find mediators are quite optimistic people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, things are not great today, but... In a year's time, yeah, you may yeah. well find that uh, a new spring or something has come, and, and actually, it's amazing what can happen. That's right. That's right. But it, uh, you know, we look, we're looking at it objectively, of course, mm-hmm. and I wonder how easy it is for um, people who have been, uh, you know, minded to fight for their children or fight for the the, the, the various. Yeah. Uh, elements of their separation um, and how difficult it is for them to, to change their mindset uh, to be a bit more... Again, you know, please let me say I have the utmost respect for people who feel the need to do that and I have children. I, you know, would, uh, of course, the thought of being separated from them would be heartbreaking and horrifying. So I, I wouldn't for a moment um, sit in judgment on anyone who's done that. But I think I would, I would want to say one thing um, that touches on much of what we've talked about. There, there's a particular irony about fighting for a relationship with your children when your ex is alive yes. and possibly caring for them much of the time. And the irony is, is this, that the relationship that you rightly wish with your children probably depends on both their relationship with your ex and your relationship with your ex and therefore the very act of fighting can harm 
the relationship that you need to make a, a job of parenting. Yeah. So I, I think that there is an irony in there, and um, maybe the best way to put it is to turn it on its head and say, well, from a child's point of view, what do they most need? Well, they probably need a good relationship with both parents, and they probably, and there's lots of evidence for this, they need those parents to be cooperative enough um, to make things work smoothly for them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's quite challenging. Fighting and that cooperative parenting relationship don't very easily coexist. Sure, sure. Well, it's been uh, illuminating as always, Charlie, so many thanks for your time today. My pleasure. And you've been listening to Audio Cam for Cam Scotland. You've been listening to Audio Cam with Cam Scotland. For more interviews and links to our mediators, subscribe on iTunes and thanks for listening.